One more person wounded in the mass shooting this weekend in Monterey Park, California, has died. The 11th victim the incident that happened during Lunar New Year celebrations. What we know about the motive of the gunman and the reaction of the local community coming up. Today is Monday, January 23rd, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, more electrical substations in the Pacific Northwest were attacked in 2022 than the prior six years combined. This as the FBI has warned of far-right extremist groups targeting the power grid. Extremists might be to blame. The recent substation attacks have been spoken about in glowing terms by certain members of the extreme right. Also, a scientist describes finding a 17-pound meteorite in Antarctica and the full white and wintry weather forecast coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Authorities are confirming an 11th victim of the Monterey Park mass shooting has died. Los Angeles area officials are not yet releasing that person's identity, nor those of most of the other 20 victims who were among those killed or injured late Saturday when a gunman identified as an Asian man in his 70s attacked a dance hall where people were celebrating the Lunar New Year. NPR's Nathan Rott says authorities have released some information, though, about the victims. The Los Angeles County Coroner's Office has released preliminary information on the victims. None was younger than 50 years of age, and three of the victims were in their 70s. Two of the women who were killed were identified, including 65-year-old Mi Nan. Her family released a statement on Twitter saying she spent years going to the dance studio where the shooting occurred and that it was what she loved to do. Information on the other victims is being withheld until their families have been notified. Nathan Rott, NPR News, Monterey Park. Police say the gunman went to another dance hall in a neighboring city but fled after two attendees wrestled the gun from him. He was later found dead of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. Police are still investigating motive. Asian American and Pacific Islanders nationwide are shaken by the attack perpetrated by a member of the community. On top of the anti-Asian discrimination and violence, it's increased since the start of the pandemic. Fears were underscored by White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre's remarks today. We do know how deeply it has impacted the AAPI community. Monterey Park is home to one of the largest AAPI communities in America. In honor of the victims, President Biden ordered flags be lowered to half-staff. The field for the Arizona 2024 Senate race is growing after Congressman Ruben Gallego announced he will seek the Democratic nomination. The seat is currently held by independent Senator Kirsten Sinema, who recently left the party. Here's NPR Susan Davis. Sinema has not yet announced if she will seek re-election in 2024, but Arizona is likely to be a top priority for control of the Senate and White House. Gallego had been considering a possible run even before Cinema left the Democratic Party in December, though she still caucuses with Democrats for the purpose of organizing the Senate. No Republicans have yet entered the race. Gallego is Latino and a military veteran. He's likely to run to the left of Cinema, who's become a top target for the progressive movement after opposing key parts of President Biden's agenda, as well as her opposition to changing filibuster rules to make it easier to pass legislation in the Senate. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington. Four more members of the far-right Oath Keepers group have been convicted in Washington, D.C. of several charges, including seditious conspiracy, in connection with the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol two years ago. They have been ordered to remain under house arrest until they are sentenced. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Today's wintry mix has turned to mainly snow in most parts of Massachusetts, and that is having some effect on travel in parts of the state. There have been 200 flight delays at Logan, more than 100 cancellations today. On the Mass Turnpike in Western Mass, there's a 40-mile-per-hour speed restriction in effect now in both directions between Palmer and the New York State border. Travel times are also slow on major highways in eastern Massachusetts with conditions that are wet and slushy. The Steamship Authority and the MBTA are not reporting any weather-related travel issues as of now. We'll have more on the forecast coming up. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says she is not surprised that a plan to rebuild a section of the Mass Turnpike in Alston failed to get approved for a federal grant. The U.S. Department of Transportation rejected the $1.2 billion joint application from the city and the state. The money would have paid for about 60 percent of the project. Mayor Wu tells WPR's Radio Boston the city will try again. Many of these larger projects and larger grants require several years in the cycle, and many of the projects ahead of us in the queue were further along in their design and planning and had been in the application process for a long time. The mayor says the project would improve transportation and expand park acreage. Professional athletes unions are asking state gaming regulators to take a hard line against harassment related to sports betting. Wagering on pro sports games will become legal at Massachusetts casinos a week from tomorrow. NFL Players Association lawyer Ned Ehrlich is worried the pressures of sports betting could amplify the kind of in-stadium misbehavior that New England is already notorious for. Things being thrown at our members long before gambling, beer being dumped on opposing players. In fact, there was a rather public one at Foxborough in 2018 with Tyreek Hill. Hill was a wide receiver for the Kansas City Chiefs at the time. Players unions are also asking the Massachusetts Gaming Commission to be willing to prohibit betting on certain games if fans become too unruly. Snow is falling across most of the state right now. WBR meteorologist Daniel Noyce says we've got a few more hours of wintry weather to get through. Snow is still coming down out there, a coating to two inches in many spots, though in central and western mass there's been some higher amounts. The snow will taper off and end by 8 p.m., total accumulation an inch or two for the city. Tonight, the sky's clear, low of 29, so untreated surfaces will be slippery. It'll be quiet tomorrow with some melting high of 40. Then our next storm moves in Wednesday, likely starting as a brief burst of snow Wednesday evening before changing to rain and ending by Thursday morning. In the Boston area now, 34 degrees at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles where the year of the rabbit has opened with tragedy. Just outside of L.A. in a small city called Monterey Park, Lunar New Year celebrations were underway Saturday night at the Star Ballroom Dance Studio when a gunman entered and killed 11 people. He injured several others. Producer Janaki Mehta and I came to the intersection of Garfield and Garvey Avenues last night, just steps away from that dance studio. Chinese community-wise, I don't think we've ever encountered anything of this magnitude. Yang Zuo was clutching his young daughter's hand, the two of them just trying to process what had transpired less than 24 hours ago. When you first heard the news, having lived here for a while, like, what went through your mind? Um, outrage, just shock. Not even outrage, just, just shock. Just jaws to the floor, instant shock, because 
this is a very conservative community where everybody is for the most part over 40 everybody just minds their own business they're just here to make an honest living that dance studio is behind the bank of america that everybody goes to is also right next to the sheriff's station so this is a very safe neighborhood we kept hearing that how safe this neighborhood has always been li huang who moved to monterey park after emigrating from shanghai showed me a video on his phone of what garvey avenue looked like just on saturday night Okay. Hours before the slaughter. Oh, yesterday there were clowns and balloons and yeah. ticket booths and looks like amusement park games yeah. where you could win prizes. Oh, just a sea of people, yeah. a parade. Right here, right here on Darby. This is last night, yep, at 5.38 p.m. last night. Well... All those balloons and ticket booths were gone, replaced by yellow police tape, road barriers, and makeshift memorials of flowers, candles, and cards. One read, may the AAPI community do what we do best, take care of one another. I don't speak fluent Mandarin, and I found myself awkwardly resorting to Google Translate with some people. Google. Yeah. Monterey Park has been called the first suburban Chinatown. This community is about two-thirds Asian, mostly Chinese, many recent immigrants. Tell me why you wanted to come here tonight with these flowers. Hunter Chow had been hanging back, watching the mourners from a distance with a bouquet of flowers in his hands. Because today is Chinese New Year, and it's very sad that something like this happens on the first day. Chao says he first came here after emigrating from Hunan province in China because he wanted to live in a place where he could fit in culturally. And you know, a lot of people think of Monterey Park and the surrounding area as a place to find really good Chinese food. And it is, but it's so much more than that. You come here to be with people who look like you, talk like you, share the same background as you. And for Vincent Wu, who just moved here a month ago, this was a comfortable start in L.A. Yeah, you don't ever, you don't got a chance to use English there. How much do you speak English when you're just going about your life here in Monterey Park? Uh, 10%. 10%. Even though the majority of people in Monterey Park are Asian, other immigrants who live here feel a sense of kinship too, including Adam Jonah who's originally from Budapest, Hungary. He's lived here almost two decades, and he happens to be one of the dance instructors at Star Ballroom Dance Studio. We approached him after he had just placed a bouquet of red and white flowers on the street. Were you there last night? I was supposed to be there last night, but my schedule got canceled due to my students went to a different venue. Oh my goodness. What went through your mind when you heard what happened last night? I then? honestly... I'm just in denial still at this stage. Did you know personally any of the people who were killed or injured? Of course, of course I work with them, and I still don't know who the 10 other person who got injured, or. but I'm hoping that everybody is okay. Can you tell me a little bit about the community at Stardance? Since a lot of patrons are elderly or retired, mostly recreational dance or classes, um, showcases, parties. I mean, was there a part of you that was so relieved that your class got canceled? 
the part of me today start to hit reality that no day is guaranteed and I'm very blessed that I'm here and I was a little mad to my student that starting out the new year a little lazy and a lot of classes are being cancelled but It is very sad. It is very sad. Before leaving Garvey Avenue, Jonah told us that he's bracing himself to learn the names of the victims that he fears he will recognize. I'm not looking forward to that. Well, authorities in California have now publicly identified some of the victims, but the names of others have yet to be released as officials work to notify their families. We'll have the latest on that and the ongoing investigation later in the program. But first, we're going to hear a little bit more about the city of Monterey Park itself and the community there. And for that, we turn now to Min Zhao. She's a professor of sociology and Asian American studies at UCLA. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Elsa. Thank you for being with us. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that Monterey Park is often referred to as the first suburban Chinatown. Can you tell us more about the city's history and how it came to be the place that it is today? Yes, that's correct. Um, So in the 1970s, Monterey Park was a multiracial community already. And then in the 1980s, there has been very strong foreign investment into the community from Taiwan and other parts of Asia, especially Taiwan. And then that investment really kind of start to attract immigrants from Asia, first from Taiwan and later on from mainland China and then uh, from other parts of Asia. So the suburban Chinese community, as it's evolved, it becomes a magnet for the uh, more resourceful middle-class uh, Chinese immigrants. What's striking when you walk through Monterey Park and other parts of the San Gabriel Valley is you see so many signs written in Chinese characters, right? Like, yeah. your dentist is Chinese. The people who run the grocery stores and work at the grocery stores are Chinese or are of other Asian descent. Like, you can be immersed in your culture 24-7 while you live there, right? Yeah, yeah. And also it's the American ethnic culture, right? And so so that's why the immigrants and also Asian Americans, they are quite attracted to that area, both with the American cultural diversity and also with their own unique culture. Like I myself, quite frequently I go there to shop. I live in the, um, on the west side. Mm-hmm. Of Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh-huh. And um, so so a lot of people who do not live in the area, they also go there to shop, right. to have fun. Like dancing is part of it, right? Yeah. So yeah. that dancing studio and um, the herbal store next to it, mm-hmm. and then also the tea shop, uh, you know, a very well-known Taiwanese tea shop right across the street. Is, is where we go there often. Yeah, and I heard that you have even danced at the Star Dance Ballroom Studio. Yeah, you, uh, several years ago, I, I danced there. I mean, I'm not very 
good at dancing, but you know, <laughs> it's a community, right? It's kind right. of the event with friends.、Um, but my my child's in laws,、uh-huh. they are regular dancers. So that weekend, they would have been there if it had not been for the Lunar New Year. Wow!、Um, because they had to go to be with their family for the gathering, so they did not go. But they were kind of, you know, traumatized by that. Well, given your personal connection to the ballroom studio and to Monterey Park, I mean, what was your reaction when you first heard this news? I, I'm just totally shocked and devastated、yeah. because it, it's so dear to my heart that community、mm-hmm. and and I I I even feel you know my heart went to the victims you know it could have been me and it could have been anybody、mm-hmm. yeah and also I feel angry too that such things are happening. In our community, well, authorities say that they are still investigating what the shooter's motivation may have been. But but whatever that person's reasons were for doing what he did, what do you think the impact of this mass shooting will be on the people of Monterey Park and the surrounding Asian communities there? Well.、Um, Whatever the motive of the killer, right? One thing to me is for certain that that person is definitely emboldened by the gun culture in this society, and also by the violence against Asians in the recent years, especially during the pandemic. So that, for me, I I, I don't think there is any doubt on it. Now, to the Asian community, like to individuals,、mm-hmm. right, like、mm-hmm. me. You know, when we are walking on the street and you know doing things in the community, now we are still scared, right? And that's you know that fear. It's kind of a, a traumatizing, a re-traumatizing.、Um, yeah, Min Zhao. She is a professor of sociology and Asian American studies at UCLA. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News, and this is ninety point nine WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, a Democratic congressman in Arizona announces he'll run for the seat Senator Kirsten Sinema is leaving open as she leaves the party to become an independent. That story in about fifteen minutes, and later physicists and the definition of swing. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. The week started on an up note on Wall Street. The Dow closed three quarters of a percent higher, 254 points, to close at 33,630. S&P rose nearly one and a quarter percent to end the day at 4020. The Nasdaq jumped two percent to close at 11,364. Massachusetts drug maker EMD Serono will lay off 133 employees from its staff of 500 at its Billerica Research Center. Most of those being let go come from a team that focuses on drug development and design. Serona says the cuts are part of a reorganization of the way the company does research and development. It represents a shift to developing external partnerships for future drug launches. 
Serono's drugs focus on oncology, neurology, and immunology. Marketplace has business news coming up at 6.30. It's now 19 past 4. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Montgomery Carroll Group, guiding buyers and sellers in Brookline and Newton. More about Matt Montgomery, Lauren Carroll, and their team at mcgroupcompass.com. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash car. Snow is coming down at a pretty good clip out there, according to two inches in many spots, higher amounts central and western Massachusetts. The snow should taper off by 8 o'clock tonight, and then clear skies after that. Temperatures about 29 degrees for tomorrow. Look for highs of about 40 degrees, so some melting out there. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Antarctica is the world's premier hunting ground for meteorites. One reason is that space rocks stand out against the ice. Although meteorites fall in a random fashion all over the globe pretty evenly, the probability of finding a meteorite is enhanced if the background is a plain color like snow or ice or sand in the case of the Sahara or the, or the Atacama. Maria Valdez is a cosmochemist with the Field Museum in Chicago. She and three other scientists just spent a month on the icy continent and found five meteorites. And what is that? Good chance. Including a big one the size of a cantaloupe, weighing in at nearly 17 pounds. One way they hunted for the space rocks was riding snowmobiles across fields of blue ice. We would get into a V formation with the field guide at the front and two scientists on either side, um, and driving very slowly, five to 10 kilometers an hour, just looking back and forth for any uh, black rock against the ice. And if you find something, you just lean down, pick it up, throw it in your sack? How does that work? (laughs) We try not to touch it, just uh, not to contaminate it, but we would call over the others. We had walkie-talkies with us. Um, and we would radio everyone over to come and look. We'd all get down on the ice very close and just visually make a a quick judgment right there whether or not it was a meteorite. It was generally pretty obvious. How is it obvious? How do you know a rock is a meteorite and not just just a plain old rock you're about to haul back? Yeah, and that's true. There are a lot of terrestrial rocks that do look like meteorites. We call these meteor wrongs. But what we're looking for is a telltale fusion crust uh, in the first place. This is a glassy crust that develops all over the meteorite as it enters our atmosphere at at, uh, high speeds and and melts slightly. And then secondarily, we can also see if it's very heavy for its size, if it's very dense. Because Right, I was wondering. I mentioned the mm -hmm. one that was the size of a cantaloupe and nearly 17 pounds, which is an extremely heavy cantaloupe. Exactly. Um, Yeah, because generally meteorites uh, can be pretty metal-rich. And so they look like they're going to be a certain weight, and then you go to pick them up and you realize, oh no, this is much heavier. And um, what's special about the big one in particular is that although Antarctica 
gives us most of the meteorites that we have um, in our collections now. Of the 45,000 that have been collected in Antarctica so far, only about 100 have been larger than the one that we found. Hmm. On, yeah. Okay. And I... Um I heard you found this the really big one, the cantaloupe-sized one, on your very last day of hunting. <laughs> what was that like? Tell me the story. Yeah, you know, uh, we had already had a, a fruitful experience. We had found four meteorites, about 150 grams or less up until that point. And we were about to go home, pack up our tents, and drive the snowmobiles back to base. I mean, it was literally the last hour of the last day, and we stumbled upon this huge meteorite just sitting by itself in the middle of a blue ice field. And um, it really didn't take long at all for us to, uh, to all determine that this is a meteorite. We got so excited and we were like, what, what uh, amazing luck to have this happen just as we were about to give up and go home, you know? Yeah. So everything's gotten sent to this lab in Belgium. They will analyze them. What sort of things are you hoping you might learn? Um, so as a cosmochemist, we are uh, we're interested in the chemistry of solar system materials. And this is because solar system materials are basically windows into solar system history. They're, they're time capsules that record in their chemical compositions the conditions of the solar system uh, when these rocks formed four and a half billion years ago. They record any any um, movement within the solar system, where in the solar system they, they derived from, um, how the planets or rocky bodies that they come from evolved over time. They really have a wealth of information wrapped up in their chemistry. So, so that's what I'm interested in, um, in teasing out from these rocks. Maria Valdez is a cosmochemist with the Field Museum in Chicago. Thanks so much for sharing uh, your discovery with us. Thanks so much. The three-word catchphrase, this is fine, has come to mean things that are actually not all that fine. It's all thanks to an enduring, ubiquitous meme. You've probably seen it. A smiling cartoon dog sits at a table, sipping his coffee, as the room around him goes up in flames. This is fine, the dog assures himself. Well, it's been 10 years since its creator put out the comic strip that bred the famous meme. NPR's Emma Bowman spoke with the artist who now says the canine's dog days might be numbered. To give you an idea of how mainstream this meme has become over the past decade, look to Congress. Republican Senator Richard Burr referenced it back in 2018 to describe Russian interference in American politics. Some feel that we as society um, are sitting in a burning room, calmly drinking a cup of coffee, Telling ourselves this is fine. That's not fine. So why does Casey Green, the webcomic artist behind the meme, think the comic has resonated with so many people for so many years? Because of its simplicity, he says. I made it vague on purpose. You know, so like like any good piece of art, uh, it, people interpret it how they want to. He first published the work in 2013 as part of his comic strip series Gun Show. A year later, the comic's top two frames went viral. I remember it first being used on Instagram meme accounts saying, like, uh, when finals week starts, this is fine. And then it just sort of snowballed from there. From the beginning, the dog character, Question Hound is his name, has been a conduit for the artist's own thoughts and feelings. Green was 25 and focusing on his mental health when he drew the famed on fire strip. I was just like, 
is this okay? Or am I doing good? Am I supposed to ignore everything else? It kind of feels like you just have to ignore all the the insanity around you, like a burning house. And the, the comic just ended up writing itself after that. But these days, he says he's all about fighting the fire. I've still gotten plenty of people say telling me they've gotten comfort from uh from from that dog and being seen in that way is uh helpful. But uh, but working past it, work not just accepting it, but working past it, trying to grow from it. That is that is my jam. The meme's success has made the artist enough money to allow him to keep drawing for a living. The dog was animated for a handful of adult swim ads. A question hound plushie continues to sell out. There's even a This Is Fine Bunko Pop. But 10 years on, Green is ready for a new chapter. He wrapped Gun Show years ago, but Question Hound lives on in his comic Funny Online Animals. In its current storyline, the dog has disappeared into the woods in a crazed state. Green has designs for an eerie noir turn. I think after that, I might lay him to rest for a while. I mean, people still post with or without me uh, using the character or not in, in my own comic. So it's it's for my own sanity, I suppose. Either way, the dog remains immortal in memedom, helping the rest of us feel a little less crazy. Emma Bowman, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Wet and white this afternoon. Snow total should be about two inches tops in Boston and on the south shore, just a coating on Cape Cod. In Metro West and on the north shore in Worcester, there could be two to three inches of accumulation. And the prize for snowfall goes to parts north and west of 495, four to eight inches in Lowell, Lemonster, and Fitchburg. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. Listeners come to WBUR for insightful, fair, and balanced information. And this is just what we strive to offer our clients as they endeavor to understand the complexities of the real estate market. Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, a WBUR business partner. We really believe when people have good information, they can make great decisions. Because of this, we feel so aligned with the mission of WBUR. For more information, email partnerships at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Investigators say the motive behind a mass shooting over the weekend in Monterey Park, California, that left 11 people dead remains unclear. That shooting happened during a Lunar New Year celebration at a ballroom dance hall. Police later located the 72-year-old gunman, an Asian-American man who frequented the dance hall, dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Josie Huang of member station KPCC has more. Shock and fear were the initial reactions of the people I talked to. And things feel very heavy because of the timing of the attack on the eve of Lunar New Year. And that's 
when people were celebrating downtown in Monterey Park the night of the shooting, actually not far from the ballroom where the shooter attacked, maybe just blocks away. And Lunar New Year is a big deal in Asia, of course, but it's also really big amongst the Asian American diaspora, especially in a place like Monterey Park, which is two-thirds Asian, and the majority of that population is made up of immigrants. Reporter Josie Huang, some cities have canceled Lunar New Year events, or they're beefing up security as a precaution. The Supreme Court has unanimously ruled against a military veteran suing the Veterans Administration. As NPR's Quill Lawrence tells us, he was seeking decades of retroactive benefit payments. Adolfo Arellano served in the Navy from 1977 until he was honorably discharged in 1981. He did not apply for disability benefits until 2011, when the Department of Veterans Affairs granted that he suffered from a mental health condition and PTSD connected to an accident on an aircraft carrier. VA started paying him benefits, but Ariano argued that his disability had prevented him from applying for benefits back in 1981, and he should get back payments. The decision against Ariano wasn't a surprise, though. Lower courts had already ruled in the VA's favor, and the Supreme Court only took this case to weigh in on the legal details regarding exceptions to statutes of limitations. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A 40-mile-per-hour speed restriction is now in place on the Mass Turnpike in Western Mass between Palmer and the New York State border due to snow conditions. The National Weather Service expects heavy snowfall bans, especially in Eastern Mass, through 6 p.m. State police say highways in the Boston area are slow going with heavy volume from the afternoon commute and the wet and slushy conditions. The state highway department says it has more than 1,100 pieces of equipment treating the highways and other state roads. The mayor of Boston says the city has about 400 pieces of equipment treating the streets. Lots of cancellations at Logan Airport. Check with your airline before you head out. Next month, the city of Boston will host a series of conversations on how to update school buildings throughout the district. WBR's Amanda Bielan has more on what Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says parents and community members can expect from the meetings. Mayor Wu says the goal is to reduce the time it takes from identifying problems to fixing them. She points to work at Chinatown's Josiah Quincy Upper School, which she says has taken more than a decade from design to renovation. We should have some standards of what every elementary school should include, what every high school should include in terms of performance spaces and science and bathroom standards and all of the above. And so we are going to have that set of district-wide conversations so that when we get to the process of designing individual schools, we're skipping ahead to the meat and bones of how does this particular building fit into this community. The first of seven listening sessions takes place February 4th in Roxbury. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. The daughter of Massachusetts Congresswoman Catherine Clark has been ordered to stay away from the Boston Common. Riley Dowell was arraigned and pleaded not guilty today to allegedly vandalizing a historic marker and assaulting a police officer. Suffolk County DA Kevin Hayden says on Saturday the 23-year-old spray-painted anti-police messages on the Parkman bandstand on Boston Common when police tried to arrest Dowell. Hayden says Dowell flailed her arms and hit one of the officers in the face. She was released on $500 bail. The forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Student Employment, connecting you to smart, reliable students for part-time work. Free job listings at bu.edu seo. 
Snow is coming down at a pretty good clip right now. Roads out there are slushy, should be slow. Uh, the snow should slow and come to an end by just about 8 o'clock tonight. And then clear skies. We should be left in total with about 2 inches of snow in Boston, 1 to 2 inches on the south shore, and in Metro West, the north shore, out to Worcester, possibly 2 to 3 inches of accumulation. When you get out to parts north and west of 495, it's more like 4 to 8 inches around Fitchburg, Lemonster, and the Lowell area. This is WBU. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. On a Monday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Whether you've caught your breath or not, as soon as one election season ends, another one begins. And that means 2024 Senate races are already underway. The latest development, today Arizona Democratic Congressman Ruben Gallego launched his bid with an ad. I will be challenging Kirsten Cinema for the United States Senate, and I need all of your support. Cinema left the Democratic Party in December and is now an independent. She has not announced whether she'll run for re-election. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis is here for a very early look at the Senate landscape. Hey, Sue. Hey, Ari. To start in Arizona, is Gallego's announcement a direct response to Cinema leaving the Democratic Party? You know, Gallego had been pretty public that he was considering a primary challenge even before she had made her decision. So it is likely that his campaign is going to run to her left. She has seen a lot of opposition from the progressive movement, from progressive activists, especially for her moderate voting record in the Senate. But Arizona is a purple state and 2024 is going to overlap with the presidential race and those dynamics. It's a state Republicans absolutely can win in, but the party hasn't had a great track record. They have been fielding far right candidates like they did with Blake Masters in the Senate race and Carrie Lake in the governor's race, who both lost. But no Republicans have announced yet for the Senate race if Senema if cinema ultimately does decide to run, it could create the situation where a candidate could win with just a plurality of the vote. And in Arizona, that's particularly fascinating. I mean, this is a state that right now is almost evenly split between Republicans, Democrats, and independents. So there's really no built-in party advantage there. Hmm. To zoom out for a moment, every couple of years, one-third of the Senate is up for re-election. What does this particular mix of states and senators foreshadow for what to expect next year? Well, control of the Senate is absolutely going to be up for grabs. Democrats currently hold it with a narrow 51-49 majority. And Republicans start this election season in a pretty good position by simple math. You know, Democrats are defending control of 23 states, while Republicans will have to defend just 10. There are a number of Democratic-held seats in red states, Ohio, Montana, West Virginia, which will, you know, pretty likely vote Republican on the presidential level and give a possible down-ballot advantage to candidates there. There's also several Democratic-held seats in purple states, like Arizona, as we mentioned, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, also going to be presidential swing states, so likely very competitive and very expensive places to run. And the bad news for Democrats here is that on the other side, the Republican-held seats up next year, they don't really have a lot of opportunities for them. These are very red states like Wyoming, Mississippi, North Dakota, places where the Democratic Party just doesn't really have a viable shot at flipping control. 
Is it unusual for candidates to be making moves this early when the dust only settled on the midterms a few weeks ago? Yeah. I mean, you know, in the modern era, there's really a lot of pressure, and I think this is true in both parties, that candidates and especially incumbents make up their minds and announce very early. Senate races are increasingly expensive, especially if you're trying to run in a big state like California or Texas. Open seat races are even more expensive. So the more notice party leaders and campaign operations get is welcome. I think it's safe to say most senators will probably make up their minds by the end of the summer at the absolute latest. And we're already seeing movement. Uh, Republican Senator Mike Braun in Indiana has announced he's leaving. He's going to run for governor. Um, Democratic Senator Debbie Stabenow is retiring in Michigan. Uh, There's also Retirement Watch. One of the senators people are watching for what they do is Dianne Feinstein in California. She'll be 91 years old if she decides to run for re-election in 2024. Uh, And already some Democrats are announcing they will run there regardless of what she does. Uh, Also watching John Tester of Montana and Joe Manchin of West Virginia. These are states that, you know, they could win, but if they decide to retire, Republicans would be very favored. But at least one of those red state Democrats, Sherrod Brown of Ohio, gave Democrats a sigh of relief today. He announced he's hiring a campaign manager, which is a pretty good signal he plans to run for a fourth term. That's NPR political correspondent Susan Davis. Thank you. You're welcome. In the Pacific Northwest, there were more attacks on the power grid last year than in the previous six years combined. Now, it is not clear who is behind most of the incidents or if they are indeed connected, but the FBI has been warning utilities of white supremacist plans for such attacks. That is according to an investigation by Conrad Wilson from Oregon Public Broadcasting and John Ryan from member station KUOW in Seattle. After a series of power outages on Christmas Day on the outskirts of Tacoma, Washington, the 911 calls poured in. 911, what are you reporting? Power station over here off the Palliser Highway, and it's on fire. Okay. Three of the transformers are burning on top. Power substations convert high voltages into the lower voltages that keep America's lights on and appliances running. Somebody had cut their way into four substations and sabotaged the equipment inside. They knocked out power to more than 10,000 people. Tacoma public utility officials called for emergency help. The reason for the large power outage down there is we had someone break into our substation and open circuit breakers and pry open boxes. So I was trying to get someone to respond to that substation. The Christmas attacks were just the latest of 15 grid attacks in the Northwest since June. In most cases, the motives aren't known. By New Year's Eve, two local men had been arrested for the Christmas crimes. Prosecutors say the men didn't appear to have political motives. They aimed to knock out power so they could rob local businesses undetected. The arrests are encouraging, but we believe that the threat still exists. Doug Johnson is a spokesperson for the Bonneville Power Administration. The federal agency sells hydropower in the Northwest. We have not slowed down our efforts to further harden our substations and and protect them in a physical manner. In November and early December of last year, as the attacks accelerated, the FBI warned utilities of an increase in threats from racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists. That's government speak for neo-Nazis. The FBI bulletins say extremist calls to sabotage the grid were possibly to blame for the attacks in the Northwest prior to the ones on Christmas Day. We're in a real wave of domestic extremist violence right now that's been increasing for several years. Mary McCord is a former top national security official at the Department of Justice. McCord says it doesn't matter to extremist groups who actually carries out the attacks. Just the fact that the attacks are happening contributes to their goal of sowing discord. 
white supremacists and others who are seeking to advance their own causes for ideological reasons can use that to sort of advance their purported goals of causing the chaos, undermining the government, undermining general stability. Neo-Nazi groups have launched several plots to take out the U.S. grid in recent years. They've even put out how-to manuals to make it easier to attack vulnerable parts of the nation's critical infrastructure. Joshua Fisher-Birch is a researcher with the Counter-Extremism Project, which tracks these groups' online activities. The recent substation attacks have been spoken about in glowing terms by certain members of the the extreme right, and particularly by neo-Nazi accelerationists. Whoever's behind these attacks, energy experts say they're playing with fire. Ian Cope is a spokesperson for the Grace Harbor Public Utility District in southwest Washington. His utility was targeted three times last year. You're talking about thousands of megawatts of electricity coming through uh, these highly sensitive pieces of equipment. And it's somewhat miraculous that uh, this hasn't led to a fatality yet. Federal energy officials in December launched a four-month study of ways to protect America's far-flung electrical grid from bad actors. For now, much of the system is so fragile that it doesn't take sophisticated conspiracies to do major damage. For NPR News, I'm John Ryan in Seattle. And I'm Conrad Wilson in Portland. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. HarperCollins publishing employees have been on strike since November. Their union has been without a contract since April. Last week, striking workers rallied outside News Corp, that is HarperCollins' parent company, and they plan to continue picketing. NPR's Andrew Limbong has this report. It's been a kind of rainy and dreary in New York City lately, but on Wednesday, the sun was out as crowds of people rallied outside of News Corp's corporate offices in support of the HarperCollins union workers. We're a little tired, but morale is still quite high. Paris Turner is an editorial assistant at HarperCollins. The striking workers have spent these past 50 business days sending a rotating group of people over to picket at the HarperCollins office. For Turner, it's been an exhausting but invigorating experience. Historically, when I've hung out with other publishing people, it tends to be very like, uh, our industry is so bad, and it's just like complaining about work. When we're gathering, we're actively working to make publishing a better place. The HarperCollins Union has been on strike since mid-November, but they've been working without a contract since April. The major asks from the union are, one, stronger union protections, two, more support for diverse employees, and three, higher wages, particularly for folks at the bottom tier who the union wants to see get paid at least 50000 a year. HarperCollins declined to offer anyone up for an interview, but sent a statement saying they've negotiated in good faith with the union for more than a year. But, quote, unfortunately, union leadership continues to push far-reaching demands rather than working together to come to a fair and reasonable agreement for both sides. The workers and union leaders I talked to said they haven't heard from management since the strike began. This is a sign that employers feel like they don't have to come to the table. Eric Blanc is an assistant professor of labor studies at Rutgers University. When you're up against such a powerful boss who remains dead set in trying to prevent workers from winning their demands, it's going to come to the broader labor movement, the broader public and politicians to put their weight to bear. The longer it goes, the more people would like to see it resolved and resolved in the union's favor. 
Chelsea Hensley is a literary agent at KT Literary. Agents are the people who take new books from authors and sell them to publishers. And Hensley helped organize an open letter of other literary agents supporting the union, stating they wouldn't be sending any new projects to HarperCollins beyond those already under contract until an agreement is reached. More than 200 signed. I myself have four submissions that were going out this month that Harper is not getting. If you do that math, that's hundreds of submissions that Harper's not getting, that their competitors are getting. Speaking of competitors in the publishing game, there are only a handful of other big companies making up the so-called Big Five publishing houses. Of these, HarperCollins is the only one with a union. According to Blanc, the labor professor, it's a remnant of the white-collar organizing wave of the 1940s that hit a dead end with the 1947 Taft-Hartley Act, which, among other things, expelled radicals from union leadership positions. The white-collar union movement really didn't survive in most places, and what's anomalous is the HarperCollins Union did survive and lived to see an uptick in the 1970s, and then particularly in the last recent years, a more major uptick, but that hasn't yet spread to the other four of the big five publishing companies. But if the HarperCollins Union gets the wages and protections they're asking for, it could set a higher standard for the rest of the publishing industry going forward, even if they're not unionized. It's an uphill climb, though. The striking workers have been without a paycheck for months now, but they're already planning another big rally in February. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Jazz experts and scholars have long debated the musical question, what exactly is this thing called swing? Well, now scientists think they've got the answer. You'll hear about it in a minute. And ahead in the next hour, how warmer New England winters are forcing snowplow drivers to find new work. But not today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CB Team in Lexington, using exposure therapy to help all ages learn to overcome OCD and anxiety disorders. More at cbteam.org. The snowfall affecting most of the state has caused some power outages, especially in western and central Mass. More than 18,000 homes and businesses are without power statewide. The most widespread outages are in Winchenden, Hubbardston, and Phillipston. A winter weather advisory is in place until 9 o'clock tonight. Until then, we've got a pretty steady snowfall, some wind behind it. The storm should end around 8 or 9, with skies gradually clearing out. Still windy, dropping to about 28 overnight. And then for tomorrow, sunshine, believe it or not, highs around 37 degrees. Total snow accumulation should be around 2 degrees tops in Boston and on the South Shore. Metro West and the North Shore in Worcester, 2 to 3 inches of accumulation. WBUR supporters include Eversource, a proud sponsor of MassSave, energy-saving solutions for your business no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. So far, Joe Biden has given us a tale of two presidencies. The first year defined by the Afghanistan fiasco, the second year defined by Joe Biden rallying the Western world to face down Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. But now he's up against a Republican House majority. Journalist Chris Whipple on what's next for the Biden presidency. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Now, a mystery about music. Specifically about jazz. What is this thing called swing? 
What is this thing called swing? In 1939, Louis Armstrong asked a question that musicians still debate what creates the swing feel in jazz. Now, scientists think they've got an answer, and it all has to do with subtle nuances in timing. As part of our science series, Finding Time, NPR's Maria Godoy has the story. Don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Do I, 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 do I? As Ella Fitzgerald and many others have sung, swing has long been considered an essential component of jazz. It's hard to put into words, but you might describe swing as a rhythmic phenomenon. Propulsive, groovy feeling created when performers are playing off each other in a way that makes you just want to move the music. Swing is a feel. There's a certain language. There's a certain inflection of rhythm. Christian McBride is a Grammy-winning jazz bassist, music educator, and host of NPR's Jazz Night in America. He says one defining component of swing is how eighth notes are played, instead of playing them straight. And that is like... In jazz, these notes are swung, meaning the downbeat, or every other eighth note, is played just a little longer, while the offbeat notes in between are shortened, creating a galloping rhythm, like this. (laughs) But jazz musicians know that technique alone can't explain swing. After all, even a computer can swing a note. A computer just ain't, it just ain't gonna swing that hard, you know? You still don't get the real proper swing feel which is a human feel, you know what I mean? That's McBride swinging with one of his bands. For me, I think you gotta lock people in and say, okay, here's where the time is, here's here's where the rhythm is, and then everybody collectively, the musicians and the listeners can go, ah, yeah, that feels, that feels right, right? But how exactly are musicians playing off each other to create that swing feel? That's what Theo Geisel wanted to find out. I'm a professor uh, for theoretical physics. Geisel is director emeritus of the Max Planck Institute for Dynamics and Self-Organization in Göttingen, Germany. He studies the physics of synchronization. For example, how the billions of neurons in your brain coordinate with each other. He's also a passionate amateur saxophonist. He even has a band with other physicists. They play at conferences. Over the years, Geisel has wondered, How do musicians synchronize when they try to create swing in jazz? Now, you would think that musicians should synchronize as best they can when they play together. This is true, of course, to some extent. But since the 1980s, some scientists and music scholars have claimed that the swing feel is actually created by minute timing deviations between different instruments. To test this theory, Geisel and his colleagues took jazz recordings and used a computer to manipulate the timing of the soloist with respect to the rhythm section. We had experts, professional and semi-professional jazz musicians, rate how swinging these different versions of a tune were. In one version, for example, the piano soloist started at the exact same time as the rhythm section, like this. 
In another version, the soloist's downbeat started just the tiniest bit behind the rhythm section, but their offbeats were not delayed. That sounds like this. Didn't hear a difference between the clips? It's okay. Geisel says most people probably won't. After all, the timing delays we're talking about are minuscule, just 30 milliseconds or a fraction of the time it takes to blink an eye. Even so, the jazz musicians rating the clips picked up on it. They noticed the difference and they could feel the difference. They told us that they could hear a friction between the rhythm section and the soloist, but they were amazed that they could not identify what was going on exactly. Geisel says the expert musicians were seven and a half times more likely to rate the version with the downbeat delays as swinging harder. The researchers also analyzed over 450 recordings of jazz soloists, and they found that almost all of them were using tiny downbeat delays relative to the rhythm section. There were very few exceptions. Geisel says these tiny timing delays aren't random. They're systematic, though musicians are probably just doing it intuitively. So have scientists finally cracked the code for swing? Well, we have cracked a lot of it. But he says there are some mysteries of individual artistry that science might never be able to unravel. As for jazz musicians seeking the secret to swing, McBride says, study the greats. There's the spiritual answer and then there's the, you know, the scientific answer. You know, I think you just got to listen to people who did it well. Louis Armstrong, start there, you know. Uh, you actually want to go hear somebody who can swing their butt off? Nicholas Payton would not be a bad start. Bradford Marcellus would not be a bad start. He says, listen closely, and eventually, those mysteries of rhythm and timing will reveal themselves. Maria Godoy, NPR News. Composer Ruichi Sakamoto turned 71 this month. He's been making music for decades. What gives him the staying power? It's so timeless. It feels like you've almost always known it. His most recent album was made as he was being treated for cancer. To hear more about his career, including working with Hollywood filmmakers and hip-hop artists, come back and listen to our show tomorrow. Just turn on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fox, with the new crime anthology series, Accused, 
Every week, a new case, a different defendant, and an unpredictable story designed to keep viewers guessing. Accused, series premiere tomorrow on Fox. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden has picked Jeff Zients as his new chief of staff. He is one of the best managers. That's the main thing you need for a chief of staff at this point. More on the choice coming up. Today is Monday, January 23rd, and you're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins in Monterey Park, California. There are more questions following the killings of 11 people and wounding of 10 others at a dance studio. Most of the victims were older and of Asian descent, as was the gunman, a 72-year-old Asian man with no criminal history. Also, the movie Casablanca was released a year after the U.S. joined World War II, and there's a reason that it drummed up support for the U.S. war effort having to do with the actors. The accents are real because many of those actors were refugees in real life. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Investigators are continuing to look into a mass shooting over the weekend at a Lunar New Year celebration in Southern California. The death toll rising to 11 after a 72-year-old man opened fire over the weekend at a dance hall and attempted to carry out a second shooting in another club but was thwarted. Jose Sanchez is mayor pro tem of Monterey Park and visibly distressed today. He said nonetheless he's heartened residents have come together after the shooting. And it's, it's a lot, of, it's, it's very emotional for me as well because this, I, I live here, I have three daughters and I know a lot of us were at the festival, um, at the Lunar New Year festival right just before this happened. But I'm, but I'm so um, hopeful of how the community has come together. I'm very hopeful uh, of how we're going to recover and I know we will recover and we'll come out stronger. Police say the suspected gunman later took his own life. Authorities say he had recently visited a local police station claiming his family was poisoning him. A jury has found the January 6th rioter who propped his feet on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's desk guilty on all counts. As NPR's Austin Fast reports, he joins a growing number of people convicted for their part in storming the U.S. Capitol. The jury deliberated just two hours before finding Richard Barnett of Arkansas guilty on all eight counts, including entering a restricted building with a deadly weapon and theft of government property. Barnett had a stun gun tucked in his pants while in Pelosi's office. He also stole a piece of her mail. 
He testified last week that he was just looking for a bathroom when he stumbled into Pelosi's office. Barnett is scheduled for sentencing in May, but outside the courthouse, he promised to appeal. Nearly a thousand people have been charged in connection with the January 6th riot. So far, just over three dozen have gone to trial. Like Barnett, the majority have been found guilty on all counts. Austin Fast, NPR News. Russia is warning Western countries that sending tanks and other sophisticated weaponry into Ukraine risks escalating tensions there. Moscow NPR's Charles Maines has the story. Speaking to journalists, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said divisions in Europe over whether to provide tanks to Kiev showed there was increased nervousness within the NATO alliance over antagonizing Moscow. Peskov also insisted that countries, quote, pumping weapons into Ukraine, then bore responsibility for prolonging the conflict and Ukrainian suffering that would come with it. Meanwhile, Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Rybkov became the latest Russian official to warn that the West's growing military involvement in Ukraine risked a possible wider conflict. Ripkov accused the West of ignoring Moscow's signals that increased weapon shipments could lead to what he called unpredictable consequences. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Stocks gained ground to kick off the new trading week. The Dow is up 254 points. The Nasdaq rose 223 points, an increase of nearly 2%. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Snow continues to come down at a steady clip across much of Massachusetts. The State Department of Transportation has more than 1,100 pieces of equipment on the roads now to fight the snow. Heavy volume on the roads is combined with the weather to make for a pretty slow commute, even though the major roads are mostly just plain wet. 128 northbound will take you more than an hour if you're going from Newton to Linfield. 93 northbound will take you 45 minutes from downtown Boston to Route 128. The central and western part of the state has seen the bulk of the snow from the storm. There's been six to seven inches of snowfall in the Berkshires, about five inches in Athol, closer to Boston, three inches in Westboro and in Lexington, two inches around the Framingham area, and one inch has fallen in Braintree. Worcester Department of Public Works and Parks Commissioner Jay Fink says the main roads in that city are for the most part wet and slushy. He says his department will hold off on plowing roads until after the evening commute is over. Because of the commute, I don't want to introduce into the commute a fleet of snowplows because that will just create uh, pretty much gridlock. Fink says the focus until after the commute will be on treating roads with de-icing materials. We'll have more in the forecast coming up. Gambling giant Caesars wants to open a sports betting facility at Rainham Park. That's the old dog track that's now a simulcast racing shop. Caesars says it's planning to build a standalone sports book there that could be built by the middle of the year. The proposal will need approval from the State Gaming Commission. In-person sports betting will become legal in the state one week from tomorrow. Leaders in the legislature of Massachusetts and in the governor's office will get together tomorrow for the first consensus revenue hearing of the Healy administration. They'll hear from economists and budget analysts as they try to estimate how much tax revenue the state will take in during the next fiscal year. That figure will be used to help craft the governor's first state budget, which is due March 1st. It's getting more expensive to fill up at the gas pumps in Massachusetts. The statewide average cost of gasoline has risen seven cents since one week ago. AAA says a gallon now costs $3.37. The price is five cents lower than the national average. More now on the forecast. The snow continues to fall across the state. WBR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says there are a few more hours of wintry weather to go.
Areas of snow will wind down west to east by 8 p.m. The highest totals in central and western mass, but an inch or two of accumulation in the city, one to three inches for many with a coating to two inches from the Cape down to Plymouth. Tonight, the sky's clear. The temperatures drop into the 20s, so some icy spots will result. Tomorrow, melting, sun and clouds. Overall, a really nice winter day, high of 40. Then our next system arrives Wednesday late in the day, likely a short period of snow before changing to rain and ending early Thursday. Snow in the Boston area now where it's 34 degrees at 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Officials in Los Angeles County are still trying to figure out what drove a 72-year-old man to enter a packed ballroom dance studio on Saturday and open fire. I think we all want to find out why. My individual officers want to know why. I know the families want to know why. The why is a big part of this. That was Scott Weiss, the police chief of the city of Monterey Park. Earlier today, officials said another victim in the shooting had died, bringing the total dead to 11, with nine others injured. It is one of the worst mass shootings in California history, and it has shattered the largely Asian-American city. NPR's Adrian Florido is in Monterey Park. Hey, Adrian. Hi, Ari. U.S. Senator Alex Padilla visited Monterey Park today. What did he say? Well, the senator was among a number of county and state-level uh, officials who are in Monterey Park today. Among them, Governor Gavin Newsom. Uh, Both men have been expressing condolences uh, and also talking today about the importance of addressing gun violence. Here's what Senator Padilla said at an informal press conference today. We cannot let mass shootings be the norm, not here in Monterey Park, not in California, not anywhere in the United States of America. He and other officials said that there are still a lot of unanswered questions about this crime, and we're expecting more information from officials about the investigation at a press conference later today. One of those big unanswered questions is why did this man kill these people? Authorities say the suspect took his own life yesterday as police closed in on the van he was driving. Anything more known about his motive? Uh, not through official channels, although we understand that police are investigating whether a personal dispute might have led this gunman to do what he did. Uh, we know that he was a 72-year-old Asian man named Hu Can Tran. He was from Riverside County, about 45 minutes east of Los Angeles. And officials have said that he was also a part-time dance instructor who had a relationship with both the Star Ballroom Dance Studio, where he carried out the massacre, and the nearby Lai Lai Ballroom, where he showed up later Saturday night and apparently planned to keep shooting. That, that is where he engaged in a long physical struggle with the front desk employee who managed to wrestle his gun away. Let's talk about the victims because investigators have begun releasing some of the names. What can you tell us about those who were killed? Uh, Well, they were in their 50s, 60s, or 70s. This dance studio was a place where a lot of older Asian Americans and Asian immigrants went to dance waltzes, tango, salsa, cha-cha, and other ballroom dances. Um, Police are still working to identify the victims and and contact their families, but they have named two of the dead so far, uh, a 63-year-old woman named Lilan Lee and also Mei Nan. She was 65, and her family posted a statement online alongside a photo of her smiling in a sparkly blue dress. Uh, They said that she had been going to the Star Ballroom for many years, and they said it was what she loved to do, and they lamented that uh, Saturday was her last dance. 
This is being felt very widely, but we've been talking in other parts of the program specifically about the Asian American community in Monterey Park. How are people there handling this? With a lot of difficulty. Uh, Asian Americans in this country have been on edge for years now. Uh, we've seen a large spike in crimes motivated by anti-Asian bias. Uh, and Asian leaders ascribe that to the way that former President Trump blamed Asians, and specifically Chinese people, uh, for the COVID pandemic. And so it's understandable that uh, a crime like this, perpetrated on the eve of the Lunar New Year, a, a time of celebration, would trigger fears that this could be motivated by anti-Asian hate. Uh, in the last couple of days, Asian American leaders and community members have been mobilizing to support each other and help each other process uh, the trauma. And uh, here in Monterey Park, victims' services are being offered at, senior citizen, at a senior citizen center, and officials are urging anyone who uh, might need help uh, to reach out. That is NPR's Adrian Florido covering the investigation into that massacre in Monterey Park, California. Thank you for your reporting, Adrian. Thank you, Ari. The maker of M&M's says the colorful cartoon versions of the candies that appear in its ads are taking a break. As NPR's David Folkenflick reports, Fox News' biggest star made these sugary snackables part of the primetime culture wars. You've probably seen a fair bit of those saucy characters we're talking about here. Hey, the new M&M's Dulce de Leche Caramel. Nope. Not us. No way. Plots, jokes, celebrity cameos, things got a touch racy, even a bit meta. What are you doing? The character actor Patrick Warburton there coming across three animated M&M's. What? You're eating M&M's. Yeah, so are you. I'm not an M&M. You don't eat your own kind, it's unnatural. The M&M campaign stretches back more than two decades. No one had found recent iterations more unnatural than Fox News' Tucker Carlson. The brown M&M has, quote, transitioned from high stilettos to lower block heels. Also less sexy. That's progress. Here was Carlson on his primetime show a year ago. Parent company Mars Wrigley also swapped out the go-go boots on the feminine-appearing green M&M for a pair of sneaks. The company had announced it wanted to create a world in which everyone feels they belong. M&Ms will not be satisfied until every last cartoon character is deeply unappealing and totally androgynous. Until the moment you wouldn't want to have a drink with any one of them. That's the goal. When you're totally turned off, we've achieved equity. They've won. So we have a case of candy cancel culture on our hands here. Tucker Carlson gets to notch the win, I guess. Funny thing, usually Carlson is the guy telling viewers he's the champion of those who say they are canceled by critics, like this conservative comic. So we open this show by telling you about the comedian Josh Denny, who has been silenced as And so many others. So now you're not even allowed to buy a used copy of Dr. Seuss's books. It's just too dangerous. Even given we're talking about cartoon chocolates here, kind of ironic. Last fall, Mars introduced a new spokes candy. Hey, Purple, 10 minutes till your big debut. I'm the new M&M's candy. Do I have what it takes? And Carlson made sure his audience knew of the disturbing developments. Woke M&M's have returned. The green M&M got her boots back, but apparently is now a lesbian, maybe. And there's also a plus-sized, obese, purple M&M. So we're going to cover that, of course, because that's what we do. Carlson told the conservative British magazine The Spectator he was just making fun of the campaign, but said women can wear sexy boots and still be in leadership positions. Noted. 
Speaking of women in leadership positions. Good evening, America. I'm Vice President Kamala Harris. That's actually not Vice President Kamala Harris. It's comedian and actor Maya Rudolph, Eminem's new spokeswoman. For its newest face, the company turned to a biracial woman entertainer who helped raise money for Harris and other Democrats that Carlson routinely blasts. She'll kick off Eminem's new commercials, where else, during the Super Bowl, which Mars says were already in the works. Looking forward to Carlson's post-game analysis. David Folkenflik, NPR News. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. When Todd Cashton was 13, his mother died of breast cancer. He and his twin brother stayed home for about a week before heading back to school. I was surprised to find that when I walked through the hallway, none of my friends would make eye contact with me. Nobody wanted to make eye contact with me. Not teachers, not friends, not teammates. Every once in a while, as I was walking to my first class, somebody would have this half wave where it barely even crossed their chest. And in that hallway, the most unlikely of supports walked over to me, Jeff Paget, a football player on the team with me, a guy that was definitely not in my social group. He was popular, he hung out with girls, girls didn't even talk to me yet. We weren't friends. And he put his arm around me. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, hey, I heard about your mom. How are you doing? And he looked me right in the eye. And Jeff said, listen, let me walk you to class. And I was almost in tears. And it sounds really intimate and emotional. And at 13 in 1987, it was. Just the idea that someone saw me. And as we walked through the hallway, it was as if I had this invisible protective shield that made me feel a little bit more strong and that I could get through this. And when I got to class, he just patted me on the shoulder as if he did nothing and then walked off. And the unfortunate thing is Jeff Padgett died. And it was that moment last year when I heard about this online that I realized I never thanked him and he never knew how much I thought about him and how much of an impact he had on my life. And so I leave this story up here for anyone that loved him or cared for him to know that there was a guy who helped another guy at the most crucible moment of his development and his life, and he made everything okay. Todd Cashton lives in Clifton, Virginia. Jeff Paget died of cancer in August of 2020. He was 47. You can find more stories like this on the podcast My Unsung Hero. And to share your story of an unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The week started on an up note on Wall Street. The Dow closed three quarters of a percent higher, 254 points, to finish at 33,630. S&P rose nearly one and a quarter percent to end the day at 4020. The Nasdaq jumped two percent to close at 11,364. Spotify is cutting jobs, but the impact on employees in the Bay State is still unclear. The audio streaming and media company says six percent of its global workforce will be laid off. That's some 600 jobs across the organization. Spotify has had an office in Boston for five years and has not said how many jobs will be lost there. Marketplace has details of all the business news coming up at 6.30. It's now 5.19. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by German International School Boston. Now enrolling students who are new to German in grades 1 to 5. Sign up for Information Night February 8th at gisbos.org. Celtics have to miss out on all the snow here. Their road trip continues with a stop in Orlando tonight for a 7 o'clock game with the Magic. Bruins are off until tomorrow night. The forecast is coming up. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Pretty and pretty wet out there for the next several hours. Snow totals should be about two inches tops around Boston on the south shore. A coating on the Cape and Metro West and on the north shore, Worcester, there could be two to three inches of accumulation. And the prize for snowfall goes to parts north and west of 495, four to eight inches in Lowell, Lemonster, and Fitchburg. 34 degrees now at 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It has been 80 years since the release of the Hollywood classic Casablanca. It opened nationwide in 1943, about a year after the U.S. had joined World War II. Moviegoers were thrilled by the love story. Humphrey Bogart stars as the cynical owner of Rick's Cafe, a nightclub in Morocco. Ingrid Bergman is his old flame Ilsa, now married to Victor Laszlo, a dashing resistance leader being hunted by the Nazis. He is played by Paul Henreid. But Casablanca also had a supporting cast of actors who had themselves recently fled the Nazis, and this helped the film deliver its message that a war far from our borders was a war worth fighting. Radio Diaries brings us that story. It had to be you. It had to be you. My name is Leslie Epstein. I'm the son and nephew of Phil and Julie Epstein, the writers of Casablanca. My name is Noah Eisenberg, and I'm the author of We'll Always Have Casablanca, the life, legend, and afterlife of Hollywood's most beloved movie. Very early on in this film, we're brought into the interior of Rick's Cafe. Rick's Cafe is the place where refugees in Casablanca are waiting for secure passage to the new world. There is smoke swirling around. There is jazz music coming from Sam's piano. Wonderful you had to be you. 
we see a number of faces, each one more desperate than the other. There's this fellow who has one line in the movie. Waiting, waiting, waiting. I'll never get out of here. I'm dying, Casablanca. And we see a woman trying to sell her diamonds to find a way to get to the new world. But can't you make it just a little more, please? Sorry, madame, but diamonds are a drug on the market. Everybody sells diamonds. There are diamonds everywhere. When people speak here, the accents are real because many of those actors were refugees in real life. That gives it a kind of authenticity. In a sense, they're playing themselves. And once again, let's knock My name is Nikki Dantine. My husband was Helmut Dantine, who had a small role in Casablanca. In the film, Helmut is playing roulette, trying desperately to get out of Casablanca. Do you wish to place another bet, sir? No, no, I guess not. Have you tried 22 tonight? It was pretty realistic for Helmut playing that particular part before he came over to America. Helmut was the leader of the anti-Nazi youth movement in Vienna when Hitler and the Nazis entered Austria. He was one of the first people that they threw in jail. He was his 18, 19-year-old boy. Somehow, with the help of a friend, they got him out of jail and sent him to the United States. There are so many other European-born actors in the film who had fled the Nazi regime themselves. S.C. Sakal, for example, who plays Carl the waiter. I thought you would ask me, so I brought the good brandy and the third glass. He was a Hungarian cabaret actor. He had family members who would perish in the death camps. My dear mademoiselle, perhaps you have already observed that in Casablanca, human life is cheap. Conrad Voigt cast as an evil Nazi when he himself escaped from the evil Nazis because his wife was Jewish. You were Czechoslovakian. Now you are subject of the German Reich. The croupier at the roulette table, a character played by the great Marcel Dalio. Excuse me, Monsieur Rick, but a gentleman inside has won 20,000 francs and the cashier would like some money. He fled Germany very late with his wife, Madeleine LeBeau, and ended up in Hollywood. I think it's fair to say that everybody watching that film now sees these characters as Jews on the run. But Casablanca never mentioned Jews. There is Jew by implication, but nowhere are the refugees on screen identified as being Jewish. The Hollywood moguls, the boards in Washington, none of these people wanted the American public to think of World War II as a war for the Jews. I just sometimes wonder if it's worth all this. I mean, what you're fighting for. You might as well question why we breathe. If we stop breathing, we'll die. If we stop fighting our enemies, the world will die. Casablanca is a propaganda film. And is a propaganda film because the American public were not fully convinced of the moral imperative of fighting this war. And the message is that this is a fight worth fighting. 
My dear Rick, when will you realize that in this world today, isolationism is no longer a practical policy? And the character arc of Rick Blaine, of Humphrey Bogart's role, is really a parable of the United States and for policy. Rick Blaine's a cynical American man who hates to be seen as doing anything for anybody else. But in the course of the film, inch by inch, he sticks his neck out further and further. And it all comes to a head in the singing of the Marseillaise. The Germans in the bar begin singing their nationalistic song, Watch on the Rhine. Victor Laszlo, a member of the resistance, furiously descends the staircase and he tells the orchestra to play La Marseillaise, a song of the French resistance. Play La Marseillaise. Play it. The trumpeter looks to Rick. And there's a shot of Bogart, and he gives the slightest of little nods. It is Rick who gives the go-ahead for the orchestra to play La Marseillaise. That is Rick's conversion from isolationist to principled freedom fighter. There's a pause, and then, and then the song breaks loose. And we see the masses of refugees, one by one, stand up and belt out La Marseillaise. And ultimately, they drown out the Nazi anthem. And we get a close-up on the 19-year-old French Madeleine Lebeau. And we see tears streaming down her cheeks. They're not tears of glycerin shed by an actress. The tears in her eyes are real. I think a film like Casablanca gave Americans an opportunity to see what it was like to survive, to get to safety, and how your life hangs in the balance during wartime. This story was produced by Nellie Gillis of Radio Diaries and edited by Deborah George, Ben Shapiro, and Joe Richman. You can find more stories on the Radio Diaries podcast. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. It's slow going on the roads around town, especially on 128 northbound around Newton and on 93 northbound downtown through the 128 stretch. Lots of cancellations at Logan Airport. Check with your airline before you take off. Snowfall has caused some power outages in central and western Mass. More than 20,000 homes and businesses are without power statewide, most of them in Winchenden, Hubbardston, and Phillipston. It's 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lyric Stage with Preludes, Dave Malloy's musical fantasia in the mind of pianist Sergei Rachmaninoff, now through February 5th. Tickets at lyricstage.com. Tens of thousands of tech workers have been laid off since the first of the year. People have gone from feeling secure to having to deal with a high level of uncertainty, potentially for the first time in their career. How long will it take to find new work, and why is the loss about more than a paycheck? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Authorities here in Southern California say the death toll from a shooting massacre at a dance hall where people gather to celebrate the Lunar New Year has risen to 11 after another person wounded in the attack died today. That gunman was identified as a 72-year-old Asian-American man who himself frequented the ballroom. A motive for the shooting remains unclear, but the attack has sent shockwaves throughout the Asian-American community. Here's reaction from the White House and Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. As the President said last night, while there is still much we don't know about this attack, we do know how deeply it has impacted the AAPI community. Monterey Park is home to one of the largest AAPI communities in America. Some cities have either canceled their Lunar New Year's celebrations or beefed up security. Microsoft says it's investing billions of dollars into the artificial intelligence startup OpenAI, as NPR's Bobby Allen tells us it's seen as a big bet for Microsoft coming days after it laid off 10,000 workers. Microsoft is embarking on what it calls a multi-year, multi-billion dollar investment in OpenAI. The San Francisco research firm behind viral AI tools like image creator Dolly and ChatGPT, which is a sophisticated chatbot. The move is aimed at making a run at competitors like Google and Facebook parent company Meta by deploying the latest AI technology in more of its products, like its search engine, Bing. It comes just after Microsoft laid off about 5% of its staff, or 10,000 workers, in what the company described as a cost-cutting measure amid fears of a wider economic downturn. During the pandemic, Microsoft upped its headcount by 50%, a hiring pace the company now says was too aggressive. Bobby Allen, NPR News. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street today. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Heavy bands of snow are continuing to move eastward, causing a slippery evening commute. The heaviest snow is expected to move from Metro West and Rhode Island into southeastern Mass for the next couple of hours. State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says the mix of snow, slush, and wet pavement is making the salt that crews are applying to the roads less effective. He's warning of a quick drop in temperatures tonight that could cause roads to freeze. He says secondary and local roadways should be the trickiest to navigate. Be careful when you're when you're out there on roadways. If you see wet pavement, assume that it could be icy tonight, especially after the temperature drops and lower your speed accordingly. Roughly 1,700 pieces of state equipment are on the roads treating the snow and ice before the commute tomorrow. Large swaths of 128.93 in the Boston area are seeing pretty slow travel times, and flying is tricky. Logan Airport has reported 120 canceled flights today, more than 270 delays. The open enrollment deadline to sign up for health insurance through the state's health connector is midnight tonight. It's the marketplace where Massachusetts residents can find a plan if they're not covered through private insurance, Medicare, or Medicaid. Officials say individuals who earn about $40,000 a year or a family of four earning $80,000 are typically eligible for reduced-cost plans. The Health Connector website will accept applications until midnight. The Health Connector call center is open until 8. And Massachusetts Congresswoman Catherine Clark's daughter appeared in court today. She pleaded not guilty to vandalizing a historic marker and assaulting a police officer Saturday. Prosecutors say 23-year-old Riley Dowell was approached by an officer while spray-painting a bandstand on Boston Common with anti-police phrases. She allegedly flailed her arms while resisting arrest, hitting an officer in the face. She was released on $500 bail. And a Western Massachusetts high school got a shout-out on Saturday Night Live over the weekend. Minichog Regional High School in Wilbraham 
has had its roughly 7,000 lights continuously on since August of 2021. The lighting system's energy conservation software has failed, and supply chain issues for the part needed to fix it mean it didn't arrive from China until just recently. The situation was too funny for SNL's Colin Jost to resist. Due to a computer error, a school in Massachusetts has been unable to turn off its lights for over a year and a half. The students are doing fine, but the classroom hamster has gone insane. School officials say the glitch has cost taxpayers thousands of dollars a month in electricity bills is expected to be fixed within one month. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at MOS.org. The winter weather advisory is in place until 9 tonight. Until then, a pretty steady snowfall with some wind behind it. The storm should end by 8 or 9, with skies gradually clearing out. Still windy, dropping only to about 28 overnight. Be careful of slick roadways tonight. And then for tomorrow, sunshine. Highs about 37 degrees. 34 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. President Biden is entering a new, tougher stretch of his presidency with investigations hanging over him. And he will have a new chief of staff to help him through it. Ron Klain, who has been a close aide for years, is leaving the role. And Biden is going to replace him with Jeff Zients. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith has this look at the man who will run the White House. When Biden took office, his biggest challenge, the country's biggest challenge, was the COVID-19 pandemic. And Jeff Zients was the person Biden chose to manage the response. President Biden is clear. We are at war with this virus, and we're using every resource at our disposal to defeat it. That was Zients in one of his earliest COVID response briefings, scripted and controlled. He had this same even tone week after week, whether case numbers were spiking or coming down. Dr. Anthony Fauci says Zients had a Herculean task, taking a nascent and disorganized vaccine distribution effort, scaling it up and making it work. It's really an unprecedented accomplishment, I think. Touring a COVID vaccination site back in April 2021, Biden offered his own endorsement. To be a good president, you got to be smart enough to hire people smarter than you. And that's what I did with Mr. Zeiss here. (laughs) To be clear, under his leadership, the COVID response wasn't perfect. The administration prematurely celebrated victory over the pandemic only for new variants to surge. There were testing shortages at key moments. But Zeiss's tenure was largely seen as successful. And his reward will be quite possibly the hardest job in government. At least that's how former Obama White House official Cecilia Munoz described it. It's a ferociously difficult job, but he is maybe the most even-keeled person I know. And part of the magic is that there's just no ego investment. He's really all about what he's trying to get done. 
Munoz worked closely with Zeitz during the Biden transition and in the Obama administration. When the Obamacare website failed, Zeitz was brought in as Mr. Fix-It. He served as budget director and had a top economic role. Munoz says he took on wonky, unsexy projects because he could make a difference. His focus is on how does this matter to real people and how do we make sure it gets done really well? So much of being an effective chief of staff is making sure the right people are in the room, knowing how to move the levers of government. Longtime Biden friend Ted Kaufman worked with Zeitz on the transition. He says his skills are needed now. He is one of the best managers uh, that I've ever seen. I mean, I'm in, I'm in love for a long time. He's really very good at managing. And I think that's the main thing you need for a chief of staff at this point. Biden faces a looming fiscal fight with the House Republican majority, plus a raft of investigations from Congress and now a special counsel looking at his handling of classified documents. Big new bipartisan achievements are unlikely, but Biden spent his first two years getting Congress to pass funds for microchip manufacturing, infrastructure and climate change. And now he needs someone to make sure those programs run smoothly. Kaufman says Biden's likely presidential campaign will depend on it. One of the biggest issues, if he runs for president, it will be, is the government functioning? While his resume includes high-level White House jobs, it also includes a lot of time spent in the private sector, including running an investment fund and serving on the Facebook board of directors. That raises red flags for Jeff Hauser, who heads the Revolving Door Project. Jeffrey Zients is not just a successful business person. He is somebody who has been involved in many of the industries that the American people are most angry about. He'd like the White House to take the lead in going after corporate America for abuses. And he's not convinced Zients is the right person to do that. Zients allies say give him a chance. He's expected to start sometime after Biden's State of the Union address next month. Tamara Keith, NPR News. While the U.S. is still processing the shooting at the Chinese dance studio outside of Los Angeles, all over the world, people gathered to kick off Lunar New Year celebrations. From London to Shanghai, more than a billion people all around the world celebrated the holiday on Sunday. Family gatherings, food, parades, and performances ushered in the beginning of a new year, according to the lunar calendar. It's a very important holiday because it's a time to reflect what you did in the last year. And it's a time to express your hope for the next year. That is Li Wei Zhao, a senior lecturer of East Asian Studies at Brown University. He says it is a special day for families to get together, and that celebration is the biggest in China. The Chinese Ministry of Transport estimates that over the next few weeks, there will be more than 2 billion passenger trips. This epic homecoming marks the biggest annual human migration on Earth. And this year, people will reunite with family for the first time without widespread pandemic restrictions in China. Most countries in Asia follow the Chinese zodiac, which means 2023 is the year of the rabbit. Rabbit is a a very lovely animal for Chinese people. Rabbits are tender. In Chinese astrology, people born in the year of the rabbit are believed to be kind, quick, and gentle, but alert. For almost a decade, some residents in the tiny town of Geraldine, Alabama, were having their pharmacy bills paid by a secret benefactor. 
They didn't know how or why. But in celebrating the life of a local farmer, the mystery has now been solved. It was such a blessing to so many in the community. That is Brooke Walker, an owner at Geraldine Drugs. She told us about Hody Childress and the first time he handed her a $100 bill. He just came in the pharmacy one day, and that's when he asked me if anyone ever has trouble paying for their medications. And he handed me a bill, and he said, the next time that happens, will you use this? I don't want them to know who I am, and I don't want to know who they are, and just tell them that it's a blessing from the Lord. So I thought that was a one-time gift, and of course, I was blown away. But then he shows back up the next month with another bill folded up, and all he says is, you know what to do with that. This began a pattern of every month. He would come in, and he would give me a folded up $100 bill. I was honored that he thought, you know, I was the person for that job. Walker says that fund grew and grew. It all remained a secret until late last year. Childress told his daughter about the donations after he had grown too sick to make his regular visits to the pharmacy. Childress died on New Year's Day, and word of his generosity began to spread through his family, then the whole community. And since then, we've had people come and say, oh my goodness, I was a recipient of that money, and now they know who it was from. Probably one of the greatest blessings I had in the pharmacy was a young mom that could not afford her medication. And so we were able to use the fund for that. But what blew me away is a few months later, she came back into the pharmacy and she paid that money forward. And I know that Hody he made a difference in her life, and I think that she's going to make a difference in many others' lives because he instilled that in her. And he instilled that spirit in others. Walker says more donations have come into the pharmacy in recent weeks, inspired by Hody Childress. He was 80 years old. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. New England winters aren't as cold as they used to be. Warming temperatures mean less snow is falling in the northeast. New Hampshire Public Radio's Mara Hoplamazian took a ride recently with someone experiencing that firsthand, a snowplow driver. Harold Davis keeps his phone close by. In the summer, he's the guy you call to reseal your driveway, fill in cracks in the pavement, or paint stripes onto a parking lot. In the winter, he's the guy you call when snow starts to fall. When it storms, he's out all day. It's 20 stops. It's 56 driving miles. Typically, say, 10 10 minutes average a stop. It's going to take around six hours. Davis bought his plow and a used truck a few months ago. This is his first season with his own equipment. He spent about a decade working for other snow removal businesses when it gets too cold to do his usual work. He takes care of about 20 homes whenever it snows more than three inches. In December, the first storm came to Concord, New Hampshire's capital city where Davis lives. He went out with a tape measure. Oh, we're at an inch and a half. It's almost time to go out two inches. And then it was like three, and I'm like, you know, already had the truck cleaned off and started, of course. And it just felt really good when I dropped the plow for the first time. That's been the only storm this season big enough for him to plow his entire route. Davis charges per visit. If it snows a foot, he can make a few thousand dollars. He says it'll take about four snowstorms to see a return on his investment in the plow, and another five storms for the truck. But driving his usual route on this day, Davis sees only bare driveways. 
you know, rain and a snowstorm melts the snow and you can't plow a puddle. No one wants you to go plow a puddle, so. Puddles are increasingly common. Winter is the fastest warming season for most of the country. New Hampshire's state climatologist, Mary Stampone, says that means there are more days when it's not cold enough to snow. With the warmer temperatures comes a change in the type of precipitation where we have more precipitation falling as rain during the winter season. When snowstorms happen, they're getting stronger, says Astrid Caldas. She's a climate scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists. She says warmer air holds more moisture that can come down as rain or snow. A lot of people, when they have these huge snowstorms, they say, how can it be global warming? Look at all the snow. Well, that's exactly what's expected under global warming. New Hampshire's Department of Transportation says it's been kind of a relief to have less snow this season. They have lots of open positions, and they're not alone. States across the country have had trouble finding snowplow drivers. But as New Hampshire's winters get warmer, Davis says small snowplow businesses are struggling. I think it's already clear to people that you can't count on snowplowing. It's been clear for a few seasons now. Davis says he worries about climate change and losing the winters he loves. He says he's doing okay financially, but he's trying to figure out next steps for his business. I'm really still racking my mind about what else can I do to obviously keep my employees employed and to, you know, keep my family supported throughout the wintertime. For now, Davis plans to hold on to his plow despite the rain and pray for more snow to come. For NPR News, I'm Mara Hoplamazian in Concord, New Hampshire. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up, how and why to apologize. That's coming up in just about a minute. Celtics are still on the road. They've got a 7 o'clock game with the Orlando Magic tonight. The Bruins are off until tomorrow. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CB Team in Lexington, helping all ages overcome anxiety and OCD with a mix of science and compassion. CBTeam.org. It's still slow going on the roads, but getting a little bit better. On 128 northbound from Newton to Linfield, it's now about 45 minutes. On 93 northbound from downtown to the Route 128 stretch, it'll take you just about 30 minutes. Lots of cancellations at Logan Airport. Check with your airline. Snowfall affecting most of the state has caused some power outages. About 20,000 homes and businesses are without power in Winchenden, Hubbardston, and Phillipston as well. The forecast looks like we have a pretty steady snowfall until about 8 or 9 o'clock tonight. And then sky should gradually clear, dropping to about 28 overnight. So be careful out there because of the fast drop in temperatures. Then for tomorrow, sunshine highs around 37 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 549.
I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It is January, New Year, fresh start. And what better way to start anew than by wiping the slate clean and apologizing for all those lousy things we may have done last year? Well, in their new book, Sorry, 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 Marjorie Ingle and Susan McCarthy make the case that a good apology feels great to the person giving it, to the person receiving it, even to other people who may witness it. Well, Marjorie Ingle and Susan McCarthy join me now. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Susan, I'm going to let you kick us off, and I want you to tell us a story I loved. This is in the very first chapter. It's about... um, someone named Chad Michael Morissette, who, to sum up, he was bullied as a kid, and then 20 years later, out of the blue, he gets a message on Facebook. Tell us what happened. As you said, it was just out of the blue. He got a message from somebody saying, I don't know if you remember me. I was talking to my 10-year-old daughter about bullying. She asked me if I ever bullied anyone, and sadly, I had to say yes. And he had thought about this for years, he said, but he remembered that he had been a vicious bully to Chad Michael Morissette in junior high school. Apparently, this was really bad. He had to be escorted from class to class. The entire football team bullied him. Uh, They threatened him. And Chad Michael Morissette was stunned to get this apology. He thought about it for a couple days, and he wrote that he was quite moved. He said, thank you. I accept your apology. In 20 years, you are the only person to apologize for being a bully to me when we were younger. And then the guy who'd written to him was also really moved, and he said, thank you. Your forgiveness means more than you know, and I hope I'm not the last one to ask for it. Hmm. Well, let's get to the how. Y'all offer six, six and a half (laughs) simple steps to a beautiful apology. Let me let you read them. We believe that a good apology has six parts, maybe six and a half. Here they are. Number one is say you're sorry, not that you regret, not that you are devastated. Say you're sorry. The second part is to say what it is that you're apologizing for. Be specific. And this is important. This gets bungled a lot. People are embarrassed. They want to get it over with. They don't want to say what they did. They say, oh, that was quite a situation. No, you got to say what it is. And number three is you got to show you understand why it was bad, which is really difficult. You have to take ownership of the thing and show that you understand why you caused hurt. And number four is not to make excuses. Excuses can even turn into attacks. So you don't say, you know, I was having a really bad day and work was horrible and the drive home was work was horrible. And and then, you know, you know, you asked me if I'd seen your shoes and I'm not your shoe concierge. So, of course, I went off on you. <laughs> that's an excuse. That's not that's not a good apology. Right. Number five is say why it won't happen again. What steps are you taking? 
And number six, if, if it's relevant, is to make reparations. Say, you know, I'm going to pay for the dry cleaning. Just send the bill to me. I'm going to do my best to fix what I did. And these six steps are relevant for adults, for children, for corporations, for institutions, for governments. And six and a half is listen. People want to be heard. And don't jump over them. Let the person that you hurt have their say. <sighs> Which is sometimes the hardest one. You can say all the right things, and then if you keep talking and don't, <laughs> don't get the reaction from the other people, it's incomplete. Uh-huh. Correct. Yeah. <sighs> All right. So that's the to-do list. It sounds so easy. It sounds so straightforward. I love that the very first one is say you're sorry, which would seem like super obvious advice for an apology, um, <laughs> but so often doesn't happen. Right. People like to say that they're regretful and regret is about how I feel. I'm regretful. But you know what? We're all regretful. Sorry is about how the other person feels. And when you apologize, you have to keep the other person's feelings uh, at top of mind. You have a whole chapter, chapter three, about things not to say. Like what? Oh, words that don't belong in an apology. Obviously, if it was obvious, you wouldn't have to say it. Uh, regrettable. Already, I've already apologized is a thing we hear a lot. Um, dialogue, this isn't about dialogue. This is about, you know, you have to be listening and you have to just share the, the stuff that is relevant to the other person. Positivity, uh, Jesus, <laughs> journey, self-discovery, and of course, sorry if, sorry but, sorry you. Hmm. I didn't mean to. Yeah. <laughs> Intent is far less important than impact when it comes to apologies. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. To the point about impact, you make the point that a bad apology is one that the person on the receiving end thinks, okay, I was mad before, but now I am really mad. It is possible for a bad apology to make things way worse. That's absolutely true. It's, it's akin to the cover-up being worse than a crime. And, you know, if you make an apology that says, uh, you know, you shouldn't even have a white sofa. <laughs> you shouldn't have been standing there. <laughs> you shouldn't have let my dog bite you. <laughs> yeah. Precisely. Either of you ever been on the receiving end of a truly terrible apology? I would rather tell you about being on the receiving end of a really great apology. Sure. I received a letter years after a breakup from a boyfriend who just wanted me to know. It was a letter. And letters always have sort of special holy import in our culture now. Um, and he just said, I wanted you to know I'm getting married and I'm aware that I was often not a good boyfriend. And uh, I want you to know that I was listening, even when it didn't seem like I was listening. And I'm going to be a better husband because of our relationship. And there was no return address. And it was just the nicest thing. There was no expectation of a response and I still had some sad and angry feelings about that relationship. And it felt so healing. Uh, yeah. I mean, who wouldn't love to get an apology like that? We've all had, we've all had exes that you, uh, that you would <laughs> love to get a letter like that from. And it, did it help with the, with the bad feelings? It absolutely helped. It was, it made a lot of things magically get cast in a new light and it, it felt like it was good for my relationships moving forward, too. I mean, a, real, a good apology is a really, really potent thing, I think, in some ways we don't even understand yet. 
That is Marjorie Ingall and Susan McCarthy. Their new book is Sorry, 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 The Case for Good Apologies. Thanks to you both. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Louise. That was great. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. And from ECMC Foundation, working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR. Boston's NPR news station. Community members in Monterey Park, California, are mourning the 11 lives lost in the mass shooting this weekend during a celebration of Lunar New Year. Chinese community-wise, I don't think we've ever encountered anything of this magnitude. The reactions from residents to the shooting perpetrated by a 72-year-old Asian-American man coming up. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a scientist describes what it was like to find a 17-pound meteorite in Antarctica. Webcomic artist Casey Green just marked the 10th anniversary of his 2013 comic strip that became a popular meme, This Is Fine. He reflects on the meme's timelessness and the smiling dog's next chapter. And coming up on Marketplace, a look at why unemployment stays low even as job cuts soar. These stories and the latest forecast coming up, it's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A federal jury in Washington, D.C. has convicted four members of the far-right Oath Keepers group on multiple counts, including seditious conspiracy. 
NPR's Kerry Johnson reports on the latest developments stemming from the massive Justice Department investigation. This is the second group of Oath Keepers to be charged with attempting to overthrow the government by using force in connection with the attack on Congress on January 6, 2021. The group's leader, Stuart Rhodes, and a top deputy were convicted of seditious conspiracy in November. Judge Amit Mehta is allowing these defendants to remain free on 24-hour house arrest while they wait for sentencing. The verdict comes as leaders of another extremist group, the Proud Boys, stand trial on similar conspiracy and obstruction charges. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Investigators in Southern California are continuing their probe into a mass shooting over the weekend at a Lunar New Year celebration. The death toll rising today to 11. As authorities say a 72-year-old man opened fire over the weekend at a dance hall in the city of Monterey Park. He attempted to carry out a second shooting at another club but was thwarted. Police said the suspected gunman later took his own life. Authorities say the shooter had recently visited a local police station, claiming his family was poisoning him. Arizona Democratic Representative Ruben Gallego announced today he's running for the U.S. Senate. As KJZZ's Ben Giles reports, Gallego will challenge a former Democrat, Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema. Gallego, a 43-year-old military veteran known for his blistering criticism of political rivals, was first elected to Congress in 2014. He's not been shy about his desire to challenge Sinema, a thorn in the side of Democrats who left the party in December and registered as an independent. Cinema has not announced whether she plans to run for a second term. If both Gallego and Cinema do run, it could complicate Democrats' chances of maintaining control of the Senate in 2024. The two risk splitting votes in a three-way race against a Republican nominee. For NPR News, I'm Ben Giles in Phoenix. A big week for corporate earnings. NPR Scott Horsley reports investors are listening closely for clues about which way the economy's heading. Microsoft and Boeing are among the companies set to report their profits this week. A new survey of business economists finds many firms are wary about business conditions in the months to come. The survey by the National Association for Business Economics found more firms planning to cut jobs in the next three months than add workers. It's the first time the survey's shown that since 2020. More than 1,000 UAW members in Wisconsin and Iowa have approved a new contract with farm equipment maker CNH Industrial. The workers had been on strike for the last eight months. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Stocks move higher to kick off the new trading week. The Dow is up 254 points. The Nasdaq rose 223 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Travel troubles across Massachusetts are mounting this evening as the winter storm blows through the state. Numerous crashes and spin-outs have been reported throughout the region. The Mass Turnpike in the western part of the state has a 40-mile-per-hour speed limit between Palmer and the New York state border. State highway officials say they deployed more than 1,700 pieces of equipment to treat the roads and highways. Most area highways in the Boston area are wet and slushy. The number of delays and cancellations at Logan Airport are climbing right now. According to FlightAware, there have been 119 cancellations and nearly 300 delays at the airport. We'll have more in the forecast coming up. Healthcare system Tufts Medicine has laid off 70 people. Tufts manages three hospitals in Greater Boston, Tufts Medical Center, Melrose Wakefield Hospital, and Lowell General. In a statement, the provider says it's struggling with a high cost of labor and other financial pressures. It says it's also going to eliminate close to 200 open positions. Professional athletes unions are asking state gambling regulators to take a hard line against harassment related to sports betting. 
Wagering on pro sports games will become legal at Massachusetts casinos a week from tomorrow. NFL Players Association lawyer Ned Ehrlich is worried the pressures of sports betting could amplify the kind of in-stadium misbehavior that New England is already notorious for. Things being thrown at our members long before gambling, beer being dumped on opposing players. In fact, there was a rather public one at Foxborough in 2018 with Tyreek Hill. Hill was a wide receiver for the Kansas City Chiefs at the time. Players unions are asking the Massachusetts Gaming Commission to be willing to prohibit betting on certain games if fans become too unruly. Next month, the city of Boston will host a series of conversations on how to update school buildings throughout the district. WBR's Amanda Beland has more on what Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says parents and community members can expect from the meetings. Mayor Wu says the goal is to reduce the time it takes from identifying problems to fixing them. She points to work at Chinatown's Josiah Quincy Upper School, which she says has taken more than a decade from design to renovation. We should have some standards of what every elementary school should include, what every high school should include in terms of performance spaces and science and bathroom standards and all of the above. And so We are going to have that set of district-wide conversations so that when we get to the process of designing individual schools, we're skipping ahead to the meat and bones of how does this particular building fit into this community. The first of seven listening sessions takes place February 4th in Roxbury. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. The forecast now. WBR meteorologist Daniel Noyce says the snow has been falling for several hours now and there is more to come before we get some melting tomorrow. Many one to three inch snowfall reports out there, some higher totals well north and west of Boston too. The snow's still coming down for some. It will wrap up by 8 p.m. in Eastern Mass. An inch or two of accumulation for the city, a coating to two inches for the South Shore and a coating on the Cape. Tonight, skies clear, low of 29, so there will be some slick spots. Tomorrow, a nice winter day. Sun and clouds melting with a high of 40. Then snow moves back in by Wednesday evening briefly before changing to rain and ending Thursday morning. Latest snow totals for now, five inches so far in Athol, three inches in Lexington, two inches in Hopkinton, two inches in Natick as well. It's 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at wtgrantfdn.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles, where the year of the rabbit has opened with tragedy. Just outside of L.A. in a small city called Monterey Park, Lunar New Year celebrations were underway Saturday night at the Star Ballroom Dance Studio when a gunman entered and killed 11 people. He injured several others. Producer Janaki Mehta and I came to the intersection of Garfield and Garvey Avenues last night, just steps away from that dance studio. Chinese community-wise, I don't think we've ever encountered anything of this magnitude. Yang Zuo was clutching his young daughter's hand, the two of them just trying to process what had transpired less than 24 hours ago. When you first heard the news, having lived here for a while, like, what went through your mind? Um, outrage, just shock, not even outrage, just just shock, just jaws to the floor, instant shock, because this is a very conservative community where everybody is, for the most part, over 40, everybody just minds their own business, they're just here to make an honest living. That dance studio is behind the Bank of America that everybody goes to, it's also right next to the sheriff's station. So this is a very safe 
neighborhood. Yeah. Given that- we kept hearing that, how safe this neighborhood has always been. Li Huang, who moved to Monterey Park after emigrating from Shanghai, showed me a video on his phone of what Garvey Avenue looked like just on Saturday night. Okay. Hours before the slaughter. Oh, yesterday there were clowns and balloons and yeah. ticket booths and looks like amusement park games where you could win prizes. Oh, just a sea of people, a parade. Right here, right here on Darby. This is last night, yep, at 5.38 p.m. last night. Well, all those balloons and ticket booths were gone, replaced by yellow police tape, road barriers, and makeshift memorials of flowers, candles, and cards. One read, may the AAPI community do what we do best take care of one another. I don't speak fluent Mandarin, and I found myself awkwardly resorting to Google Translate with some people. Google. Google Translate. Yeah. Yes. Monterey Park has been called the first suburban Chinatown. This community is about two-thirds Asian, mostly Chinese, many recent immigrants. Tell me why you wanted to come here tonight with these flowers. Hunter Chow had been hanging back, watching the mourners from a distance with a bouquet of flowers in his hands. Because today is Chinese New Year, and it's very sad that something like this happens on the first day. Chow says he first came here after emigrating from Hunan province in China because he wanted to live in a place where he could fit in culturally. And you know, A lot of people think of Monterey Park and the surrounding area as a place to find really good Chinese food. And it is, but it's so much more than that. You come here to be with people who look like you, talk like you, share the same background as you. And for Vincent Wu, who just moved here a month ago, this was a comfortable start in L.A. Yeah, you don't ever, you don't got a chance to use English there. How much do you speak English when you're just going about your life here in Monterey Park? Uh... 10%. 10%. Even though the majority of people in Monterey Park are Asian, other immigrants who live here feel a sense of kinship too, including Adam Jonah, who's originally from Budapest, Hungary. He's lived here almost two decades, and he happens to be one of the dance instructors at Star Ballroom Dance Studio. We approached him after he had just placed a bouquet of red and white flowers on the street. Were you there last night? I supposed to be there last night, but my schedule got canceled due to my students went to a different venue. Oh my goodness. What went through your mind when you heard what happened last night? Honestly, I'm just in denial still at this stage. Did you know personally any of the people who were killed or injured? Of course I worked with them and I still don't know who the 10 other person who got injured or, but I'm hoping that Everybody is okay. Can you tell me a little bit about the community at Stardance? Since a lot of patrons are elderly or retired, mostly recreational dance or classes, um, showcases, parties. I mean, was there a part of you that was so relieved that your class got canceled? The part of me today start to hit reality that no day is guaranteed and I'm very blessed that I'm here and 
I was a little mad to my student that starting out the new year a little lazy and a lot of classes are being cancelled, but it, it is very sad. It is very sad. Before leaving Garvey Avenue, Jonah told us that he's bracing himself to learn the names of the victims that he fears he will recognize. I'm not looking forward to that. Well, authorities in California have now publicly identified some of the victims, but the names of others have yet to be released as officials work to notify their families. We'll have the latest on that and the ongoing investigation later in the program. But first, we're going to hear a little bit more about the city of Monterey Park itself and the community there. And for that, we turn now to Min Zhao. She's a professor of sociology and Asian American studies at UCLA. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Elsa. Thank you for being with us. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that Monterey Park is often referred to as the first suburban Chinatown. Can you tell us more about the city's history and how it came to be the place that it is today? Yes, that's correct. Um, So in the 1970s, Monterey Park was a multiracial community already. And then in the 1980s, there has been very strong foreign investment into the community from Taiwan and other parts of Asia, especially Taiwan. And then that investment really kind of start to attract immigrants from Asia, first from Taiwan and later on from mainland China and then uh, from other parts of Asia. So the suburban Chinese community, as it's evolved, it becomes a magnet for the uh, more resourceful middle-class uh, Chinese immigrants. What's striking when you walk through Monterey Park and other parts of the San Gabriel Valley is you see so many signs written in Chinese characters, right? Like, yeah. your dentist is Chinese, the people who run the grocery stores and work at the grocery stores are Chinese or are of other Asian descent. Like, you can be immersed in your culture 24-7 while you live there, right? Yeah, yeah. And also it's the American ethnic culture, right? And so so that's why the immigrants and also Asian Americans, they are quite attracted to that area, both with the American cultural diversity and also with their own unique culture. Like I myself, quite frequently I go there to shop. I live in the, um, on the West mm-hmm. Side. Of Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh-huh. And um, so so a lot of people who do not live in the area, they also go there to shop, right. to have fun. Like dancing is part of it, right? Yeah. So yeah. that dancing studio and um, the herbal store next to it, mm-hmm. and then also the tea shop, uh, you know, a very well-known Taiwanese tea shop right across the street. Is, is where we go there often. Yeah, and I heard that you have even danced at the Star Dance Ballroom Studio. Yeah, you, uh, several years ago, I, I danced there. I mean, I'm not very good at dancing, but, you know, <laughs> it's a community, right? It's kind right. of the event with friends. Um, but my, my child's in-laws, uh-huh. they are regular dancers, so that weekend, they would have been there if it had not been for the Lunar New Year. Wow. Um, because they had to go to be with their family for the gathering. So they did not go, but they were kind of 
you know, traumatized by that. Well, given your personal connection to the ballroom studio and to Monterey Park, I mean, what was your reaction when you first heard this news? I, I'm just totally shocked and devastated yeah. because it it's so dear to my heart, that community. Mm-hmm. And and I, I, I even feel, you know, my heart went to the victims. You know, it could have been me and it could have been anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also I feel angry too that such things are happening in our community. Well, authorities say that they are still investigating what the shooter's motivation may have been, but but whatever that person's reasons were for doing what he did, what do you think the impact of this mass shooting will be on the people of Monterey Park and the surrounding Asian communities there? Well, um, whatever the motive of the killer, right? One thing to me is for certain that that person is definitely emboldened by the gun culture in this society and also by the violence against Asians in the recent years, especially during the pandemic. So that, for me, I I, I don't think there is any doubt on it. Now, to the Asian community, like to individuals mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. like me, you know, when we are walking on the street and, you know, doing things in the community, now we are still scared, right? And that's, you know, that fear, it's kind of a a traumatizing. A re-traumatizing. Yeah. Min Zhao, she's a professor of sociology and Asian American studies at UCLA. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for being with us at 90.9 WBUR on this snowy evening. The forecast is coming up. And coming up on Marketplace, Brazil and Argentina announced they're considering the launch of a new common currency. Is this a sign that South America will follow in the footsteps of the euro? And wake up with 90.9 WBUR tomorrow for some good news. We talk with an economist who thinks the recession may be fading. Also, the details of Governor Maura Healy's comprehensive housing policy. Listen again tomorrow morning. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. The week started on an up note. The Dow closed three-quarters of a percent higher today. That's 254 points to finish the day at 33,630. S&P rose nearly one and a quarter percent to end the day at 4020. The Nasdaq jumped two percent to close at 11,364. Massachusetts drug maker EMD Serona will lay off 133 employees from its staff of 500 at Billerica Research Center. Most of those being let go come from a team that focuses on drug development and design. Serona says the cuts are part of a reorganization of the way the company does research and development. This is WBUR. Support for WBUR's business report comes from Eversource, a proud sponsor of MassSave, energy-saving solutions for your business no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. Turn your old car into new news. 
Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. A pretty steady snowfall until about 8 or 9 tonight. Then it turns cold, about 28 degrees, so it could be pretty icy underfoot tonight. Tomorrow's sunshine highs around 37 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. Working for people living with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at VRTX.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Antarctica is the world's premier hunting ground for meteorites. One reason is that space rocks stand out against the ice. Although meteorites fall in a random fashion all over the globe pretty evenly, the probability of finding a meteorite is enhanced if the background is a plain color like snow or ice or sand in the case of the Sahara or the, or the Atacama. Maria Valdez is a cosmochemist with the Field Museum in Chicago. She and three other scientists just spent a month on the icy continent and found five meteorites. And what is that? Including a big one, the size of a cantaloupe, weighing in at nearly 17 pounds. One way they hunted for the space rocks was riding snowmobiles across fields of blue ice. We would get into a V formation with the field guide at the front and two scientists on either side, um, and driving very slowly, five to 10 kilometers an hour, just looking back and forth for any uh, black rock against the ice. And if you find something, you just lean down, pick it up, throw it in your sack? How does that work? <laughs> we try not to touch it, just uh, not to contaminate it, but we would call over the others. We had walkie-talkies with us. Um, and we would radio everyone over to come and look. We'd all get down on the ice very close and just visually make a, a quick judgment right there whether or not it was a meteorite. And it was generally pretty obvious. How is it obvious? How do you know a rock is a meteorite and not just <laughs> not just a plain old rock you're about to haul back? Yeah, and that's true. There are a lot of terrestrial rocks that do look like meteorites. We call these meteor wrongs. But what we're looking for is a telltale fusion crust uh, in the first place. This is a glassy crust that develops all over the meteorite as it enters our atmosphere at, at uh, high speeds and, and melts slightly. And then secondarily, we can also see if it's very heavy for its size, if it's very dense. Because right, I was wondering. I mentioned the mm-hmm. one that was the size of a cantaloupe and nearly 17 pounds, which would exactly. be a, an extremely heavy cantaloupe. Exactly. Um, yeah, because generally meteorites uh, can be pretty metal-rich. And so they look like they're going to be a certain weight. And then you go to pick them up and you realize, oh, no, this is much heavier. And um, what's special about the big one in particular is that although Antarctica gives us most of the meteorites that we have um, in our collections now, of the 45,000 that have been collected in Antarctica so far, only about 100 have been larger than the one that we found. Hmm. Um, Yeah. Okay. And I... um... I heard you found this the really big one, the cantaloupe-sized one, on your very last day of hunting. <laughs> what was that like? Tell me the story. Yeah, you know, uh, we had already had a, a fruitful experience. We had found four meteorites, about 150 grams or less up until that point. And we were about to go home, pack up our tents, and drive the snowmobiles back to base. I mean, it was re- literally the last hour of the last day, and we stumbled upon this huge meteorite just sitting by itself in the middle of a blue ice field. And um, it really didn't take long at all for us to, uh, to all determine that this is a meteorite. We got so excited and we were like, what, 
what a amazing luck to have this happen just as we were about to give up and go home, you know? Yeah. So everything's gotten sent to this lab in Belgium. They will analyze them. What sort of things are you hoping you might learn? Um, so as a cosmochemist, we are uh, we're interested in the chemistry of solar system materials. And this is because solar system materials are basically windows into solar system history. They're, they're time capsules that record in their chemical compositions the conditions of the solar system um, when these rocks formed four and a half billion years ago. They record any, any uh, movement within the solar system, where in the solar system they, they derived from, um, how the planets or rocky bodies that they come from evolved over time. They really have a wealth of information wrapped up in their chemistry. So, so that's what I'm interested in, um, in teasing out from these rocks. Maria Valdez is a cosmochemist with the Field Museum in Chicago. Thanks so much for sharing uh, your discovery with us. Thanks so much. The three-word catchphrase, this is fine, has come to mean things that are actually not all that fine. It's all thanks to an enduring, ubiquitous meme. You've probably seen it. A smiling cartoon dog sits at a table, sipping his coffee, as the room around him goes up in flames. This is fine, the dog assures himself. Well, it's been 10 years since its creator put out the comic strip that bred the famous meme. NPR's Emma Bowman spoke with the artist, who now says the canine's dog days might be numbered. To give you an idea of how mainstream this meme has become over the past decade, look to Congress. Republican Senator Richard Burr referenced it back in 2018 to describe Russian interference in American politics. Some feel that we as society um, are sitting in a burning room, calmly drinking a cup of coffee, telling ourselves this is fine. That's not fine. So why does Casey Green, the webcomic artist behind the meme, think the comic has resonated with so many people for so many years? Because of its simplicity, he says. I made it vague on purpose. You know, so like like any good piece of art, uh, people interpret it how they want to. He first published the work in 2013 as part of his comic strip series, Gun Show. A year later, the comic's top two frames went viral. I remember it first being used on Instagram meme accounts saying like uh when finals week starts this is fine and then it just sort of snowballed from there from the beginning the dog character question hound is his name has been a conduit for the artist's own thoughts and feelings green was 25 and focusing on his mental health when he drew the famed on fire strip i was just like is this okay or am i doing good Am I supposed to ignore everything else? It kind of feels like you just have to ignore all the, the insanity around you like a burning house. And the, the comic just ended up writing itself after that. But these days, he says he's all about fighting the fire. I've still gotten plenty of people say, uh, telling me they've gotten comfort from, uh, from, from that dog. And being seen in that way is uh, helpful. But, uh, but working past it, Work, not just accepting it, but working past it, trying to grow from it. That is, that is my jam. The meme's success has made the artist enough money to allow him to keep drawing for a living. The dog was animated for a handful of Adult Swim ads. A question hound plushie continues to sell out. There's even a This Is Fine Funko Pop. But 10 years on, Green is ready for a new chapter. He wrapped Gun Show years ago, but Question Hound lives on in his comic Funny Online Animals. 
in its current storyline, the dog has disappeared into the woods in a crazed state. Green has designs for an eerie noir turn. I think after that, I might lay him to rest for a while. I mean, people still post with or without me uh, using the character or not in, in my own comic. So it's, it's for my own sanity, I suppose. Either way, the dog remains immortal in memedom, helping the rest of us feel a little less crazy. Emma Bowman, NPR News. is NPR News. WBUR supporters include The Huntington, The Art of Burning, a comedy exploring the love, rage, and responsibility that go with marriage and parenting in America, written by Boston favorite Kate Snodgrass and directed by Melia Bensusan, now through February 12th at the Calderwood Pavilion, BCA. More info at huntingtontheater.org.